Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority from God except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Covenant. Let me, uh, let me start this morning by giving some instructions to our children. You know, our children have received um, a kit, and they have a sheet where they can listen to words. Apparently, last week, I said love a hundred, how many times, Kayla? 122 times, I think it was, I said the word love. And so I just want to make sure you guys know, kiddos, that, you know, if, if, it's, if I say a word that is like close to it, like, you know, this morning, if I say government or governing, that's the same thing. You count both of them. Or if I say submit or submitting or submitted, you know, I'm putting uh, the, the hints of the verb, they all count, that, that counts as the word, okay, on your sheet. So if it sounds like, if part of the word is in there, you mark it, all right? So adults, I know you already got this and you're, you're intent on also uh, showing your children how to do it. Just don't be playing tic-tac-toe, okay? That's what I used to play with my mom during the, the long portions of the sermon. She'd play tic-tac-toe with me. That's okay. Hey, I wanted to start this morning by recommending a book. If you've never read the book, The Hiding Place, you should. Uh, it's the story of the, of the Ten Boom family. Uh, they uh, uh, lived in uh, the Netherlands, and that book recounts their efforts to save and protect and rescue Jews and other persecuted people during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands uh, during World War II. They were devoted Christians, members of the uh, Dutch Reformed Church. Their home was literally half a block from the police station, and they are credited with saving countless numbers of Jews and other refugees who they hid in their home in the hiding place, a special room that was built. In fact, when they were discovered, when the Ten Booms were arrested, in the home at that time were six Jews hiding from the SS who were never discovered, and they later were taken by the resistance to safety. Uh, they were ultimately found out, and they were arrested. The father, Mr. Ten Boom, was, uh, he died during the interrogation of the SS. Uh, Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were sent to the concentration camp. And Betsy would ultimately uh, die in the concentration camp. But Corey was, through a clerical error, uh, by accident, we don't believe in accidents, of course, providentially, by a, a, a clerical error, she was released from the concentration camp. 
And uh, so she ended up living and surviving the war. Interestingly, uh, she was released in early 1945, and between January when she was released and VE Day in April, all of the women, the unit that she was in in that concentration camp were taken to the gas chamber and died there. So her life was preserved through a, a clerical error. It's a wonderful story. You ought to read it and, and others' books that she has written. She continued to just live a, a phenomenal life as a Christian lady and leader. I've always hoped and wondered how I would respond if I was put into such a dangerous situation. I've always hoped that God would give me the grace so that I would do the right thing like uh, Corey Ten Boom did. Yet there were many Christians um, who went along with the, the Nazi government. There were uh, Christians and Christian pastors who uh, did what the Nazi leaders said to do, especially in France and in Germany. Um, one of those uh, pastors who initially endorsed Adolf Hitler uh, in the early 1930s was a man by the name of Martin Niemöller. Uh, you might be familiar with Martin Niemöller because of the words that he would later pen. Uh, he initially endorsed Hitler, but later he realized his mistake and he was imprisoned in 1938. He was in prison from 1938 to 1945. And he wrote these words, words that you've probably heard or seen. First, they came for the socialist and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Poignant words, aren't they? Uh, Kent Hughes tells a story about Niemöller when he was in prison. Um, unlike his counterpart, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who he was friends with and associates with and, and helped create the confessing church in Germany that would resist Hitler, uh, he lived through the war. He survived it, unlike Bonhoeffer. But early in his imprisonment one day, he was visited by the prison chaplain who came by and recognized him as a fellow pastor. And this chaplain said to him, but brother, what brings you here? Why are you in prison? And by this time, Niemöller uh, had maybe had his fill of, of being you know, taken and interrogated and persecuted. And so he exclaimed in a rather angry voice, and brother, why are you not in prison? Good question, right? Um, certainly, those years preceding and during World War II, there were difficult years for Christians um, to live through, just as it is right now for our brothers and sisters in Christ, places like China, North Korea, Pakistan, Sudan, India, countries that are antagonistic to the Christian faith, and they're having to grapple with issues that so far we don't have to grapple with here in America. Um, as they, they understand, they're having to, this tension, they are citizens of heaven. There are all of our citizenship, the Bible tells us in Philippians 3 is in heaven, yet we are also citizens of this earth in a nation, and we have to live in society as Christians. The Roman church was in this kind of a situation. They certainly understood, and what Paul told them here in this passage, it's very important, important for them, and it's, irrelevant, it's relevant for us today. So here's what we're going to be doing with this passage. Uh, this morning, we're going to dive deep into what he teaches, and uh, 
hopefully get these biblical solid groundings and principles that are here. And then next week, uh, we're going to have a part two. I initially had only planned to do one message, but I felt like to do it justice. Uh, Next week, we're going to really dig into and dive into how it applies to us, especially as we're living in a time right now that is filled with social upheaval and controversy and rebellion and different things that we are, are seeing. So the primary truth of this passage encapsulated in just a simple statement, transform Christians, honor and support their governing leaders. Transformed Christians honor and support their governing leaders. Now there's four reasons that he puts why this is the case in the first four verses. Verse one, God puts the governing leaders in place and he gives them his authority. He writes, let every person be subject. That word subject means to be submissive, to come underneath a leader and support them, okay? To give them your obedience. So let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, can you imagine how hard it was for the Roman Christians and the Roman church to hear these words from the Apostle Paul? I mean, let's think about who their emperor is at this point in time. It's the infamous Nero, right? Here's Nero, the emperor. He wasn't put in power because there was an election and the populace cast their votes and he won the contest. No, he comes into power because he was born into the right family. His uncle, Claudius, had been the previous emperor and he adopts Nero as his son. And Nero becomes a cruel, vindictive uh, emperor. He's a Caesar. He's an immoral, horrendous man. He's violent. He's evil. He's despicable. There's no other way to describe him. I mean, this guy is so bad, he murders his own mother, okay? After he becomes emperor, he just got tired of hearing her voice, you know? And so one day, she's dead. This is who this guy is. But in this passage, in this opening verse, Paul is reiterating a biblical truth that goes all the way back to the Old Testament, that governing authorities and leaders are in place because God puts them in place and he gives them his authority to rule. Our leaders are in place because God allows them and puts them in place. He's sovereign over everything. Go back to the Old Testament great passage that talks about this. The book of Daniel, you know the story of Daniel. He's a a Jewish young man, part of the upper class. He's taken captive when the Babylonian empire defeats Judah. He's taken to the home of the Babylonian empire, to Babylon, and he works his way up through the government. He ultimately becomes like the prime minister of the empire. But early in his life, he was known as being a man of God who could interpret dreams. And one night, Nebuchadnezzar, the great emperor of the Babylonian empire, the most powerful man on earth at that time, is standing out on his castle or his palace walls. He's looking at everything that he has, and he, he, he's, he's very proud of himself. He, he probably did the ancient Babylonian version of a Twitter storm and let everybody know in the kingdom how great he really is and how wonderful the economy was and how strong they were and no other country had ever been able to do what they have done. Life had never been as good as it was under Nebuchadnezzar. 
And he's boasting and he's proud and he's arrogant about it. And so God gives him a dream. And in that dream, he's confused. And he brings Daniel to him and says, would you interpret the dream? And Daniel does. And in that interpretation is a very interesting statement that is made concerning God's sovereignty over governments. He says this in Daniel chapter 4. As Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream, he says, You, Nebuchadnezzar, will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn. And here's the important thing, right? So here's your sentence, you arrogant, proud, egotistical man. You're going to be driven insane for a period of time until you learn something that we need to all know. That the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world, and he gives them to anyone he chooses. This is the reality of history. God is sovereign over all the nations. Nations rise, nations fall, leaders are put in place, leaders are removed. Who's behind all of it? God. So, President Donald J. Trump is in office because it is the ordained will of God. President Barack Obama is an office because it was the ordained will of God. God doesn't just ordain Republican presidents or Democratic presidents. He does not just put in place good, benevolent leaders. He brings to power people like Nero, like Pilate. Think about Jesus' words as he's on trial Jesus answers to this proud, arrogant man, Pilate, who thinks he has all power. And Jesus tells him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Why should we support and honor the governing leaders? Because God puts them in place and he gives them this authority. Wait a second. Time out. Paul, even Nero, Nero, I mean, I could see Augustus. I mean, he brought about, you know, Pax Romana. That's kind of cool. But Nero, and later on Caligula, and, and these guys, honestly, yes. How can this be? How can God bring into power people like Nero, or Pharaoh, or Nebuchadnezzar, or the Assyrian Empire, or the Persian Empire, or the Roman Empire, or the Nazis, or Stalin? or Mao Zedong, or Canada, right? No, I'm teasing, Canada's a wonderful place. We have some Canadians here, I just thought I would, they're such nice people, I just had to do something for a change, right? How does God, how does this happen, right? How does this happen? Can I, can I give, give you two, two reasons why this happens? God, even bad leaders, God uses even bad leaders to fulfill his will. This is clear in scripture. He says, I raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose, and I even hardened his heart to bring about the exodus and the freedom of my people. I raised up this cruel, vindictive empire, the Assyrians, to be my instrument of judgment and vengeance upon my disobedient chosen nation, Israel. I do this. 
I declare that Cyrus will be born and will come to power and he will free my people and send them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. I, the Lord, do this. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So high above the heavens and the earth, can't even begin to comprehend it. That's one of the biggest reasons why he does. He puts them in power to accomplish his will. You know, the easy, simplistic answer, why is President Trump, why is Donald Trump our president? Because God wanted him to be president. And whoever wins in November, it's because God wanted them to be president. And this isn't true just for presidents. This is true for governors. This is true for mayors. This is true for our council. The governing authorities here is a broad word referring to the political structure itself. And he uses even evil people to accomplish his will. And there's another important reason, and this is something that we may not like to accept, but it's true, even a bad government is better than the chaos and evil of anarchy and no government. When there is no government in place, anarchy is what will result because the sinful human condition is so extreme that when we do not have government in place, we devolve to animal-like status. Look at some countries and parts of the world that do not have hardly any government or just no government influence at all. It is insane. So we support the government and our governing leaders, and we honor them because God has put them in place. He's given them their authority. Verse 2, another reason we do it because to resist a lawful government is to resist God and results in judgment. He writes, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, we need to understand that these verses are not a full treatise you know, it's not a dissertation on the government and civil disobedience. He's giving this in the context of not being conformed to the worldly system and culture that we live in. And it's important for us to realize this because the default status and posture of a culture is to rebel against legitimate government because humans always rebel. The story of the Garden of Eden is repeatedly played out in all of our governing structures. It's true in the state, in the government of the state. It's true within the church. And the way people will rebel against the leadership that they, that they themselves have elected <laughs> of a church. And we rebel against it when nothing is being done that is immoral or unbiblical or unscriptural. By nature, humans are rebels, and that's what we do. But transformed Christians are to live differently. We live differently. We honor and support our leaders and submit to the laws of the land, assuming those laws are not immoral. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Third reason, verses 3 and 4, we honor and support our government leaders because government leaders are God's servants meant to encourage the good and punish evil in a society. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid." 
for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We see in these verses why Paul puts this exhortation where he does in the book of Romans, right? Uh, If you look at the context of the book of Romans last week, We were dealing with love, this deep supernatural love that we're to have for one another and for our fellow man. And even when our fellow man does us wrong, he points out you don't take vengeance upon them, you overcome evil with good and you trust God to take vengeance on the person who's abusing you and taking advantage of you. Transform Christians with a renewed mind don't take vengeance and matters into their own hands. Instead, what do we do? We recognize that God will bring about justice. And one of the ways that he brings about justice, he carries out his vengeance against those who do evil to his children, is he turns and he uses the state. The state has the power and the authority of God behind it to take vengeance against those who do evil. And this is good. The power of the sword being in the hands of governmental leaders because this removes that cycle, never-ending cycle, which we've seen in history of violence and vengeance and blood feuds that can escalate and spill over into society at large and even start wars. By giving this power of the sword to the state, God carries out his vengeance. At the same time, government is to encourage the good. Now the question at this point in the passage is, is the good here simply the punishment of evil, right? Making sure that wrongdoers are punished. Now, those of you who know me, you know I love history. Uh, One of my university degrees is in history. And uh, I love American history. I have books and books and books and books, and I'm reading one right now on Pearl Harbor, right? And, and uh, I, I love how our founders framed our Constitution and our founding documents, and then the way I understand it, I believe they wanted a limited government. They wanted a smaller government. They did not want a socialistic large government that becomes a nanny state. That's just my two cents worth right there on what's going on today. But you can carry that too far. Um, some want such a small government that all you do is you, you, know, you enforce the laws and you make sure nobody attacks this. National security and law enforcement. That's it. Anything other than that, government is, is not warranted. But that's not biblical. I don't believe this is biblical at all. Verse 4 says literally that government is God's deacon to you for the good. That's literally what verse 4 says, that the government is God's deacon to you for the good. Isn't that interesting? Government is a deacon, a servant. That's the word servant, right? Our word for deacon. And so the question then becomes is, what is the good that is to bring about? Well, it's certainly not less than national security and law enforcement, right? But when we look at other scriptural principles, It has to include creating an environment where the good for the people is able to occur, right? 
Certainly it includes punishing evildoers, but it includes an environment where the widow and the orphan and the alien and the downtrodden and the helpless can be taken care of, who can be protected, who can live free of fear and crime and being taken advantage of. It is helping to bring about an environment in society where we can enjoy the dignity of work and the fruit of our labor without being treated unjustly or abused or having it taken from us and stolen, where we're encouraged to innovate and to actually be who God designed us to be so that a culture can be built, a civilization can be built of order that ultimately honors God. It's a society where we can enjoy those inalienable rights which have been enshrined in our Constitution, and they have scriptural warrant here, right? The great thing about the gospel is, you know, it offends everybody. It offends the true, strong, maybe ultra-conservatives among us who just want a little tiny government, and it, it offends the, those who want us, the ultra-liberal, who want it to be a nanny state. The gospel gets all of us and everything in between. Fourth reason right? Very practical. Why should we honor? Why should we support the government leaders? Verse 5, supporting and obeying our leaders, Paul says, it's just sensible. It's the right thing to do. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath. In other words, duh, right? Duh, this is your duh moment. You you submit to and honor your government leaders. Why? So you aren't put in prison, So you don't experience the power of the sword, duh, right? It's just common sense. But he goes a step further. He also says, for the sake of conscience. Conscience. He's talking to Christians. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We know instinctively in our hearts, our conscience, the Holy Spirit, we know that it is the right thing to do to obey and support our leaders. It is always the right thing to do, to to support and obey the people in our lives that God has given to us that have authority over us, as long as they're not commanding us to disobey God, right? It's the right thing to do. So children, obey your parents. They are, yeah, there you go, mom, get that in there, right? They, They are your leader, And the Bible, God says, so submit to them. Support your parents. You honor them by obeying them. And we have it within marriage. I'm just going to dodge that one. And we have it within (laughs) government, right? We have it everywhere, right? Where we have people in authority over us in our job place, in our marriages, in our homes, in our churches. How much heartache... I have seen come into the lives of people because they simply won't listen to the wisdom of God's elders and leaders in his church. And they insist on living their life according to the way they want to do it. When the pastors of the church say, but this is what God says. This path is only going to bring you pain. It's only going to bring you chastisement. It's only going to bring you heartache. Humans are naturally rebels. We are. So we may not like a leader. We may not like the direction that he's taking the government. 
or where the government's taking us as a society. But we have to recognize that these people are in power because God has put them there. They have authority to lead us. And even when they do it poorly or wrongly or badly, we can trust that God will bring about vengeance upon those who do it badly, evilly, and corruptly. We can do that. In the meantime, we honor them. Now, the question is how? How do we honor these leaders? Verses 6 and 7. We support our leaders by giving them what they are owed. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I got a funny text on Friday. Uh, my son, uh, Jacob, just got his first large paycheck that he now has to pay taxes, income taxes on, right? And he texted me, and he, he said some things that I won't repeat in my message. And he was angry. Dad, they took 27% of my pay. And I wrote back, well, I guess Amazon just made you into a Republican. So, <laughs> he couldn't believe the amount of taxes that they had taken from him, right? He was appalled. But this is what the Bible says, since government leaders are serving God's purposes, give them what is owed, they are the authorities, the men. In fact, he uses a word here, right? And it's important for us to see this because our support and our submission to our governing leaders has absolutely nothing to do with their godly character. Nothing at all to do with their godly character. Our support is grounded in God's authority that is given to these leaders and their role. And he uses an important expression as ministers of God. He's ratcheting up the pressure here in verse 6. In verse 4, they were deacons. Now they are the priests of God. He uses the same word for the men who served in the temple who brought about the worship of God and who led the people of God in their worship and their obligations to God. He says, this is who governing leaders are. So it's not a matter of how moral or how good or what political party they're a part of. We support them in honor and we give them their due and what is owed to them because of God's authority granted to them. Our support and our obedience, right, in this passage, it's going to manifest itself in four ways. I'm going to put, I put these four ways into two categories, right? The first way is financial support and obedience. He uses the word taxes and revenues or, tax, or tribute and taxes. What was this like? Was it 27%? <laughs> Not always. Isn't that horrible? Isn't that a shame that in some cases our, our tax system in the United States today is worse than the Roman Empire who was known for an onerous tax system? But... I digress. <laughs> the, uh, they, but they could pay that much or more, depending upon the occasion. So the Romans had a poll tax, an income tax. They had wealth tax. Every year, can you imagine every year, you have to not only pay income tax, you have to pay 3 or 4% of your assets, your wealth. So every year, 
Your 401k gets dinged for 4%, okay? Your assets get dinged for 4%. I mean, that's, I, I know I would, ooh, ooh, that's not, I don't like that at all, right? Um, there were financial gifts that you were to give to honor the emperor. So you were expected as a citizen just simply to give an, an offering at the temple as part of your Caesar worship. How about, the, there, then there was these targeted taxes. Uh, here's an interesting one. Uh, it was called Judaicus, uh, uh, Fiscus Judaicus, Fiscus, Fiscal, right? Uh, Judaicus, Judaism. There was a tax on you if you were a Jew. So now do you see why this would be, I mean, when Paul says this to the Roman church, it's made up of Jewish Christians who were having to pay a tax. Every Jewish man, woman, boy, and girl had to pay a tax. Vespasian passes this tax, right? Uh, when, the, when the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, the Jews in Israel, they you know, rebel to punish the nation of Israel and Jews worldwide, they pass a tax and they use all the funds of that tax to build a heathen temple. <laughs> Can you imagine how galling that was to the Jews to have to pay a tax that they know is gonna go to build a pagan temple? And yet Paul says, pay your taxes. There's financial support, and then there's emotional and moral support. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is owed. Dr. Kent Hughes writes this, as Christians, we may deplore the politics of a particular person in office. We may be repelled by his scandalous conduct, but that does not disallow us from respecting the office. The person is just a human. But the office exists at the discretion of God. Even in our descent, we must always be Christian gentlemen and gentlewomen. But what about the evil governments? What about the Neros? What about the Hitlers? What about the Stalins? What about the Pharaohs? What about those situations where the government wants us to do something that we think is immoral or it is wrong? Certainly, this is not what Romans 13 has in mind at all, right? Well, Dr. Douglas Moo brings, he, he, he's a, a, done a wonderful commentary on the book of Romans, wonderful theologian, and he, he says a couple of things about our objections. And it's worth noting, he, he says this, first of all, why is it that we go immediately to the escape clauses of this passage instead of dwelling on what it actually says? He writes, few passages of Scripture had been studied and analyzed over the years more than Romans 13, 1 to 7. And this history of interpretation has largely been the history of attempts to avoid what the passage at first sight plainly seems to be saying. And in other words, our response overall as Christians, even as Christians, is we immediately go to the, oh, what about, wait a second, what about, and we want our escape clause. Why is this? Especially for us as Americans. I mean, we have largely been protected from this issue. Our government has not decreed and commanded and forced us to do anything that directly violates the word of God by and large. I mean, if you take one of the worst times in our history of our nation, and we're seeing the outflowing of it right now with slavery and racism, right? Now, our government put laws and protections in place that allowed those who practiced slavery to continue doing that, Within, especially within the South through compromises and things. 
But no, at no time did our government ever pass a law that forced people to buy a slave, to put someone in slavery, that demanded that you must practice slavery or you were not a good citizen of our nation. In fact, if you look at it, our nation actually put into place the mechanism for Christians who were appalled to slavery to form and gather together and raise their voices and start an abolitionist movement that ultimately resulted in the freedom of millions of men and women from slavery. So while I hate that our government ever allowed it to come into place, they didn't make a citizen become a slave owner. So even our worst incident in human history, Christians were not being forced by the government to do something that it was immoral. If they participated, they participated because they chose to because of the sin in their own heart, not because the government made them do it. So the fact that we immediately go to the escape clauses, and we're all concerned about that as Americans, the fact that we do this, maybe our objections are saying more about our hearts than about the reality of events on the ground. We need to think about that this morning. The second thing that Doug Moose says is that our submission and support to our governing leaders is first and foremost a disposition of our heart and the not a blind, absolute, mechanistic obedience. There will be times when we may not be able to obey our government leaders, but in our disobedience, we can do so in a respectful, honoring manner towards the authorities that God has put in place. And the Bible is rich with examples of civil disobedience where God's people went about this in a manner that was honoring to the very officials they disagreed with. You go all the way back to the Old Testament, you go to the Jewish midwives, they disobeyed the command to kill the babies that Pharaoh wanted executed. You come up to the Old Testament and you see it with Daniel when he's told he's not to pray anymore, he prays anyway. And when they send him to the lion's den, he does not rebel. He does not scream, burn it all down. He goes like a man of God to whatever God has in store for him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Same way with the three Hebrew children, right? They refused to bow down to the idol, the law that was passed where you must bow down to the idol. They said, absolutely not. We can't do that. They took their stand. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, yet they didn't go online to form a campaign to burn down the whole empire. Right? You see Peter and John in the New Testament, the book of Acts. They're preaching. They're arrested by the governing authorities of Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin ultimately says, you must stop preaching the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. They said, nope, can't do it. We must obey God in this matter and not man. Yet again, they did it in a way that honored him. Now, we're going to deal with this more next week. We have to, right? We have to flesh this out in our current daily context. We need to spend time unpacking how we live this out and model it in a society that is becoming more and more polarized. And unfortunately, I'm just going to say it now, 
Many Christians are contributing to the, to the climate, to the strife, to the antagonism that is in our society right now. We're pouring gasoline on it rather than being agents of peace. And so we need to talk about that. How do we live this out in the day and age that we live? Let me leave you with the final observation that Jesus provides and exemplifies the core truth behind this passage. You know, in Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22 is an example of that saying that the friend, uh, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You ever heard that before, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. In Matthew 22, uh, around verses 13, two enemies get together, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians were like collaborators. They were Jewish collaborators. They were part of the governing structure. They were okay with Rome. They were getting rich off of Rome. Uh, they, they were fine with it continuing on as they had. The Pharisees were the other group. They were very much against Roman rule. They wanted them out. They wanted their nation to be, to, to be according to the Old Testament. And so these two groups hated each other. But what they had in common was they both hated Jesus. <laughs> they saw Jesus as a threat. And so they come up with a, a, a scheme. They said, we're going to send some of our baby-faced young guys in there so they, he doesn't see the old guys coming and let the antenna go up and the shields go up. We're going to send our young guys in and have him just ask a simple question. Should we pay our taxes to Rome? What a great question. If he says yes, which is what the Pharisees were hoping, right, then he would absolutely alienate most of the nation of Israel and the Jews who hated being occupied. If he said no, which is what the Herodians were hoping, then they could turn him into the Roman Empire and say, hey, he's leading an insurrection. He's telling people not to pay your taxes. That'll get you killed in Rome, and like, in Rome like that, right? That problem solved. So they send the guys in, they ask the question, and here's Jesus's response. But Jesus aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Paul, in verses six and seven, is pulling straight from Jesus here. This idea Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. God has put Caesar in his place, even a guy like Nero. So give this governing leader the honor and the support which he is due. But don't do it at the expense of God. Don't give to Caesar what God alone should get. At the core of Jesus' command here is a heart that is humble and submissive, something that doesn't naturally come to us. But this makes a lot of sense because humility and submission is at the heart of the gospel, right? I mean, think about how we even get the gospel. Jesus humbles himself. He lays aside the glories of heaven and all that is due to him as God, the second person of the Trinity, and he submits to the redemptive plan that the God, triune God came up with before the foundations of the world. He submits to taking on human flesh, born of a virgin, living this life. He submits to the pain and vagaries of life, 
so that he can identify with us. He puts himself underneath the law and he perfectly obeys it as we are meant to do. And ultimately, he submits to an unfair trial, an unjust arrest. Listen, every Christian should identify with people in our society who are claiming injustice within our legal system. We have a wonderful legal system, but we do not have a perfect legal system. And there is injustice that occurs within our legal system. Sometimes it happens by accident. Sometimes it happens deliberately. And to pretend this doesn't happen, dishonoring to those who are the victims of injustice. At the same time, Jesus was the ultimate person victimized by a corrupt justice system. And Jesus, walking down to Via Dolorosa, didn't say, burn it down! Right? He submitted. He's humble. And he went to the cross for our sins. I want you to think about it this morning, this week. What does it look like for us as Christians in humble submission to the Lord Jesus? I mean, we can't even become a follower of Christ unless we submit and say, Jesus, you are Lord. You have ultimate authority over my life. My life is yours. Can't even come into the kingdom of God without this foundational characteristic of the gospel, this humble submission. If this doesn't describe you, the only way you get it is to pray and ask God to give you a heart like this. Because by nature, (laughs) humble submission is the last thing we're ever going to do as human beings. We're going to rebel. We're going to scream, burn it down. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came so that we could be redeemed. We thank you that you came, you put yourself under the laws, you walked a life that we walk, and yet you did it with grace, you did it with humility, you submitted even to unjust trials and an unjust execution so that we in turn could have eternal life. You, the creator of the very men and women who shouted crucify you, submitted yourself to a government that would do wrong to you But what they meant for wrong, you meant for good. And we thank you that even in a time like this, in our country where we see things happening, some of it's good and some of it isn't, we know that you are sovereign, you are supreme, you are in charge, and the events in our nation are going to work out exactly according to your divine plan. So help us, Lord Jesus, as your followers, to have hearts that are humble, ears that are open, eyes that see, seekers of truth, defenders of the victims, the widow, the orphan, the downtrodden, those who are treated wrongly. May we as Christians pursue righteousness and peace in our land and for your glory and for the good of our land. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.